We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The folks who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make this show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to ListenerQ, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q.com forward slash pull up and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered in a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash pull up. That's ListenerQ.com slash pull up. We have to discuss the fact that you're in the Hall of Fame. Walk me through your mindset, you know, how it feels now when you hear your name, Steve Nash, Hall of Famer. It's unfathomable to be a, a kid from the West Coast of Canada incredibly incredibly honored because of all the great great players that influenced me confidence can come and go confidence is important but resilience is the most important thing so no matter how the day before went no matter success or failure we had we had the resilience to keep going day after day after day if i had to hang my head on one thing it was vision like i always knew that i could see the floor and i can make the game easier and fun for my teammates Welcome to the Marshall Falk episode of Pull Up. That's right, number 28 preseason update. Briefly, getting ready for another preseason game against the Phoenix Suns on Wednesday. It's currently Tuesday. And then our final game will be against the Sacramento Kings on Friday before we take on the Lakers on the 18th. Browns got a win, so I'm really excited about that. And we'll talk about that next week. But without further ado, our special guest is on the line now. His career was... Unlike anything we've ever seen, I'm going to just go through the accolades briefly. Eight-time NBA All-Star, seven-time All-NBA, won the MVP twice, NBA assist leader five times, part of the 50-40-90 club four times. His number is retired not only in college, but for the Phoenix Suns as well. And something that many people may not be aware of is that you were nominated by Times as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. So... Without further ado, Steve Nash, I appreciate you coming on the Pull Up Pod. Oh, happy to be here. That was, uh, <laughs> that was a nice introduction. Hey, you have you had quite the career. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always kind of embarrassing at the same time. Um, you know, you're proud of your accomplishments, but uh, you're like, I don't know. Did you ever feel that way when someone runs down your accomplishments? You're just like, I, uh, get, get through it quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get, I get goosebumps sometimes thinking about my past, uh, especially when they go over like Dean's list or something like that, because it's like, wow, I really made the Dean's list in college. Like that's, it's crazy. <laughs> but to hear, <laughs> I did not, but to hear, I did not make the Dean's list. <laughs> you were too busy making it to the NCAA tournament three times, as opposed to uh, <laughs> some of the other players who went to major schools, not making it to the NCAA tournament, not being able to uh, get those 15 over two upsets. So I think that's probably the only thing we have in common right now at, to this point in our careers is uh, the upset in college. Otherwise, yeah. I'm just aspiring to, you know, try to get out the first round, try to get to the second round, try to get to the third round and and try to build on that, man. But you, your, your accolades and what you've done for the game of basketball is unlike anything I've seen and in, inspiration to a lot of people. Thank you. I appreciate that. It means a lot coming from you. I love, love watching you play, love your story and uh, watching you develop. So I feel... Uh, I feel, I don't know, like a fan getting to watch you play, especially because I know our stories are similar in a sense, under overlooked, underappreciated, and had to fight for everything. Um, I actually have a question for you. Is that, a, 
Is there? A, were you tiny when you went to school, college? He was five two. Because <laughs> uh, I, whenever I see that picture, I feel like it's Photoshop. No, it's real. So, Steve, I started off like that. Can't be. That's real. I started off. I was. So how much did you grow? I was five two, one hundred eight pounds my freshman year of high school. Uh, five seven, one hundred fifteen pounds my sophomore year, and then my first start on varsity was my junior year. So five eleven, one hundred forty pounds my junior year, and and I actually didn't start until that year. I broke the school record in my first start, and that's when I got my first uh, letter from Lehigh. I actually scored fifty four points, hit eight threes, and. Uh, I went from averaging six points a game to 25. It was kind of similar to my NBA story, you know, not playing a lot early on in my career, uh, battling some some injuries, uh, yeah. battling just, you know, natural doubts about whether or not I could make it. And then I finally get a chance to start, and I, I burst onto the scene. And my senior year, I co- before my senior year, I committed, I verbally committed to Lehigh on September 17th of 2008. And I played my senior season out at about 6'1", 150 pounds, and, I was, I was really, at that point, I was, I was wow. pretty good. I was still thin, but I could really score. Um, I was runner up Mr. Basketball, uh, Gatorade, Ohio Gatorade player of the year, and I averaged 29, 29, 7, 4. And then uh, when I got on campus, I was six, I was six, one and a half, 155 pounds. And uh, the staff was like, you're growing because when I committed, I was 5'11. So they thought, they thought they were getting a 5'11 point guard. Yeah. And by the time season started, I was 6'3 right. my freshman year. Well, how, tall, how tall are you now? Six three and a half, six four on a good day. I'll yeah, take six so four on a good day. But you also like you're you're thick now. Like you're, you know, you got strength and power. And and did that? Were were you? How much of that came in the NBA? How much of that came in college? A lot of it came towards the the latter part of my college career. And staying four years really helped me grow, you know, mentally right. and physically. I just continue to figure out how to. Uh, tighten up my body. When we first played Kansas, my freshman year in the NCAA tournament, and uh, I played well, but I just realized I was I was too skinny. I wasn't strong enough. Finishing in the paint was was really difficult for me. Uh, my right. freshman year, especially going against Cole Aldridge, the Morris twins, they had a lot of size, and it gave me like a a kind of glimpse of what it would be like in the NBA, going against elite guards, going against elite shot blockers at the rim. So I just kind of dedicated myself to the weight room, and it just so happens that. Uh, fast forward to my junior year, I was I was about 180, 185 pounds at that point. And then I break my foot my senior season. So all I could do was box, swim, and lift. And that's when I got up to about 197. I was about 200, 197 coming out. And um, I figured out ways to just develop muscle, develop strength. And then I ended up fracturing my foot again my rookie year. So that, that was just time for me to kind of change my diet figure out ways to tighten everything up. And our staff did an incredible job. I did an incredible job of just being self-aware, understanding that if I wanted to change my career, I had to change my body. Yeah, that's great. You know, now, your your brother plays pro in Europe, Yeah, right? my, my brother's actually currently in uh, Unix. He's in Kazan, Russia now. He just uh, signed about three weeks ago in Russia. And is he, was he, what was his, like, was he little and then grew, or was he always normal or or? Or tall? What was his uh, kind of his his growth spurts weren't as radical as mine, but he was he was skinny. He was definitely skinny. I think he was about five six or five seven his freshman year, so he was a little bit taller. And uh, by his senior year, he was six two. I don't know one sixty one sixty five. So he was thin, but he got to six foot a lot faster than I did. But behind my my dad, my dad graduated high school at five eight. And he's six three now, so I was thinking like, man, I hope I hope I don't get dad's jeans. 
and uh, yeah. <laughs> graduate high school at five eight because it's going to be hard for me to yeah. get a scholarship. What was it that made you think like when you're you're so undersized? What was it inside you that made you think you could be a pro? Or did I mean I'm assuming you thought you could. Like what was it that made you think I can play in college and I can play? Pro? I just had this unwavering confidence in myself. I think it, it stemmed from how I was raised. Uh, what I had seen growing up in Canton, Ohio, and just being around Eric Snow, Keith McLeod, some players that had, had come from similar circumstances in mm. terms of being in Ohio, uh, going to similar high schools, go, going to the same parks, and, and having the same resources. I just felt like uh, with my work ethic, with my dedication to the game, and uh, a lot of prayer and luck that if I got put in the right position, I knew I could make it. There was times where I felt like I wasn't going to. There was times yeah. where I wanted to quit. There's times where I would go to my mom and say, like, maybe I should just focus on academics because uh, I'm wasting time working out where I could be studying and trying to get a 4.0 to get a scholarship uh, academically. But I just I just stuck with it, man. And I just I felt like things would turn. Like once I got taller, I felt like the game would slow down. It would become easier for me. And luckily, I, I didn't quit, man. I, I, I thank the Lord. I thank my, my family for inspiring me every day to keep going and for my brother to keep for him pushing me because uh, without them pushing me, I, I'm, I may have given up on all of this. And to look back, it was it was worth everything I went through and more. Yeah, that's we have very. I mean, I, you know, not to talk about myself, but we have very similar kind of, I don't know, circumstances in some in some ways. You know, being like a, I had one scholarship offer, going to a mid major, having to prove myself. Um, you know, what like nobody believed. I remember I was like going in, going into my freshman year at Santa Clara. There was an upperclassman, myself, and my roommate was a freshman. We were running the bleachers in the football stadium. It was like, I don't know, August, September, whatever. And the upperclassman, he was like a 6'6 swing guard, wing, he could shoot, he was an athlete. You know, we were talking about, we sat down on the bleachers after. He was like, you know, what are your goals and whatever. He's like, we, uh, you know, he was started first. He's like, you know, I want to play in the league. And, and I could see it for him. You know, I could see like, yeah, he's a good athlete. He's got a good body, 6'6", he can shoot. You know what I mean? He loves the game. This, he, he could play in the league. And it came to me, and I was like, yeah, I, I want to play in the NBA too. And, like, he 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 did me the, the honor of not, like, saying anything. But he looked off in the distance, and I could just tell he was saying, like, don't say anything to crush <laughs> You know what I mean? I don't know. Like, and, I, and so I appreciate the fact that he, like, he, he held his poker face and just looked off, you know, he didn't want to necessarily like encourage me to something that was so impossible or he didn't want to crush me and take it from me. And I appreciate that, but I could read the whole scenario, you know what I mean? And it's just one of those things where you just believe, I just was like, I just think the way I work and the way, you know, my natural tools, even though I'm, I'm nowhere right now, I feel like I can transform every day a tiny bit. And if I, do that for a year, where will I be? And if I do that for three years and five years and seven years, where will I be? Um, and so I kind of had this really kind of methodical approach, you know, coupled with like a, a, just a huge passion and desire and work ethic. And then like a lot of joy for that process. Like I, I really, I loved, you know, everyone always says the grind and all that, but I love that. I love like stacking good days on top of each other and like gaining momentum and, being calm, you know, feeling like I'm get, I'm going somewhere. I don't care if anyone can see it. I can see it. You know right. what I mean? And uh, and so that I feel like it's similar to your situation. In a lot of scenarios, you have these roadblocks, these obstacles, these hurdles. You're unheralded, un- under you know, rated, and 
you know, undersized, frankly. And I was too. I was, you know, I wasn't undersized per se, but I was weak. I wasn't explosive. Um, you know, and so to, to overcome some of those things in whatever way, I think we face a, a similar trajectory. And it, it just, it proves a lot of things, and the, you know, a lot of adages that I like to bring up. And what, but one of them is, you know, we all develop at different stages. It's just the reality. And so like, you know, it's like talking about NBA players that are 1920, you know, you hear people in the media, like judging them at 1920. And it, it kind of blows my mind. You know, I'm like, like, uh, you know what I mean? Like people like, for example, deciding what, what Lonzo ball is. And it's like, he just turned 20. You know, I, I just don't, you like, to me, that's, that's insane. Like he talk to me when he's 24, you know what I mean? And we can start to have a conversation about what he is or what he's going to be. So, um, you know, when I was 22, I came out of Santa Clara and let alone when I was 20, I, I mean, I wasn't even in the category of guys in the league right now that are 20, but you play the long game and you stay with it. And, you know, things are things are possible. No, I completely agree with you. I think that one of the great things about basketball is that you never know what someone's ceiling's going to be. You don't you don't under you, you don't understand how hard they're going to work. You don't know what type of heart they have, what type of character they have, or how dedicated they are to their craft. So, the ceiling is impossible to determine. Some people have a lot of talent early on and taper off, whereas others may be lacking a few a few skill sets that they can develop later on. And I think that's what we've kind of seen from a lot of players who really dedicate themselves to the craft like like you and I have. And, you know, being at Santa, Santa Clara, mm-hmm. upset in Arizona, I just want to let you know that you inspired me. You know, when we played Duke heading into that tournament, my coach literally sent me the game. He sent me the film. He's like, go on YouTube and watch watch this upset. Watch how Steve dictates the game. Watch how he, he empowers mm-hmm. his teammates. And, and if you want to accomplish this, if you want to upset a, a number two seed, you have to you have to be able to lead your team, and they have to actually believe they can win. So, I just want to let you know that I actually watched your game and the highlights of it, and, and the breakdown of, of how you beat Arizona before uh, we we conducted the upset over Duke. So, uh, that's, that's crazy. I just thought you should know that you you literally spoke that in, into that's existence cool. for me without even knowing it, man. But being at Santa Clara, <laughs> let's let's go back to to Santa Clara. You make it to the NCAA tournament three times. You win Conference Player of the Year uh, multiple times. You go from skinny, skinny kid who has the dream to, of playing in the NBA. What, at what point did you realize, all right, I'm going to play in the NBA and I'm going to be dominant? Uh, was it before the upset? Was it after the upset? Was it a couple years into the league where you realized, like, wow, I'm going to be all the NBA. I'm going to be an all-star. At what point did you realize, like, I can get into the lane whenever I feel like it. I have vision, unlike any, anybody else in this league. Yeah, I think a lot of it's a progression. I mean, I think that I always, if I had to hang my hat on one thing, it was vision. Like I always knew that I could see the floor and I can make the game easier and fun for my teammates. And that was one thing that I always, like whenever things were bad or I didn't have confidence, that never wavered. Like that was just supernatural and enjoyable for me to rely on that. You know, shooting, I was always a good shooter, but, you know, shooting, especially, like, as you're changing and developing, like, you and mentally changing and developing, you go through ups and downs. And so I was one of those guys that I I wasn't always a super confident shooter. You know, I I was a good shooter, and I, but I my confidence didn't match my ability. So that was something that continued to develop into the league. Um, you know, of course, in college, I shot the ball fairly well and, and you know, made a lot of shots for my team, but... You know, I think if you have to like kind of lay it out, it was always it was always you know passing, 
and vision um, and in empowering my teammates, like making the game fun and easy for them to try to lift our team. That was kind of like my, those, that was the foundations of my game. And then, you know, I was always a good shooter, but, you know, I didn't really become super aggressive in college. I was more aggressive, I think, out of necessity. But then I got to the league, you know, I was up and down with, with my aggressiveness. Um, and a lot of that stems from just belief, like like believing that I belonged and all that. And, you know, I think I'd proven it enough that when I got to Dallas my second year in the league, you know, it took maybe two more years. And then Nelly, who was my coach for six years in Dallas, he he kind of like he had enough of me not scoring and being aggressive because he, you know, he used to get he used to get pissed at me, frankly. And he'd be like, if you're a dominant player, and he'd, he'd MF me so bad. He'd be like, if you're, it's bullshit. If you're a dominant player, dominate. And so he, that, him riding me really made me become super aggressive. And it just clicked one like summer kind of, I just took like those, that riding from the season and those glimpses of success into the summer. And just that summer when I was playing pickup basketball, I would just be super aggressive and, you know, it kind of just changed and I, I became kind of, I think, a person that found the balance, the right balance, or at least, you know, looking back, maybe I didn't find enough balance. I think, you know, the way that we analyze the game now and the analytics, I probably should have shot more. At the same time, I don't sway all the way to that belief because I do think that part of my talents were to bring, to elevate my team and to make it fun and to bring energy to the team because they believed they were going to get an easy bucket or a look or a lob or a three or, you know, back cut or whatever. And so I, I think that sometimes that goes, that's overlooked in an analytical age um, where that really made it fun to come to the gym every day. And if that, if, you know, I hope I'm not overstating this, but if, if that makes it fun to come to the gym and everyone has a slightly better attitude on the way down and when they arrive and when they hit the floor and when they go home, like I think the, you know, the health of the team, the psychology of the team is better. And that that's a hard thing I think to analyze, um, especially analytically. So Steve, you averaged 10.6 shots a game. Do you, I know you said recently that you probably should have shot 20, but how did the era in which you played affect the, you know, the fact that you, we're shooting 10.6. In other words, like, sure. had you played today yeah. in today's era, had you were coming in, say you're coming in the league today, would it have been more? Well, I think, you know what I mean, first of all, there's, it's cyclical. You know, we, the league goes in cycles, the rule changes, which happened during my career. It was a part of my success. You know, when I got in the league, I mean, right. you, you, the guy could pick you up full court and he could, like, put two hands on you and he could just put his, he could hold your hip and just guide you places and bump you. And, you know, nowadays you can't really, you can't touch, let alone like put a hand on a guy's hip. I mean, I mean, I'm not talking like, you know, CJ, you'll, you'll, you'll dab a guy, you know what I mean? You'll, you'll tap a guy's hip or you'll give him a, even you'll give him a kind of a stiff arm if you can get away with it. But back then you could literally grab his hip and squeeze Jeez. and hold it. Uh, that's, right. That's a so it's like that full cord and you get you get some of these like really big, strong defenders who just got, if they got their hooks into you, you know, it, it was difficult. And so and they just dictate, you. they could dictate. And then in the half court, it was similar, like where you could, you could, you know, use your forearm a lot on the drive and your hand. And so it was, it was, you know, you still, if you're deceptive and you still find a way to get in the paint, you can get in the paint, but you know, it was different, right? The game was slowed down, bogged down. It was a different game. The risk reward was less, even though you still took it. Um, it wasn't like today's fruits of of playing quick in an open lane, let alone, you know, back then we had legal defense where two guys had to be in the parking lot, as we'd say, be lifted, you know, up above the hash mark on the wing. And, 
watching two or three guys play on the other side and they made the rotations. I mean, they made the help so clear cut that it was like you had to commit so far that it made almost the decisions out of the post or pick and roll, you know, so, so much obvious in a way that that's, you know, that's when we got to those days where you, when you're going to double, you had to double from such a long distance that it was a swing, swing, swing situation. That's why we went in the post. Cause you created either one-on-one opportunities with no help or, you know, double teams where it was clear cut to toss it around the perimeter. Whereas today, you know, we took away the, you know, you can come in the lane 2.9, you know, it's a lot more like a zone, a lot more like team defense, team basketball. I think it's a lot better nowadays, way better game, you know, much more like the international game, much more like the college game, much more traditional in the sense that it promotes player movement, movement, ball movement. And it highlights actually, I think the, you know, the talents of our players, whereas, before the game really got bogged down and it was a little bit gimmicky to watch guys go one-on-one or play two man game. And, and I, I'm glad we're out of that era, but um, so the, as far as the shooting, I think to take 20 shots might've been a bit of a flip comment on the back of like the context of the conversation, but you know, yeah, 15, why, why not? I mean, I probably should have been more aggressive. Should have, you know, right. Mike D'Antoni always says that he's like, he would have made sure I took minimum of eight threes a game, all that stuff. But you know, I also, it was a, I grew up with people saying a point guard is someone that makes his teammates better and takes eight shots and makes five. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't like, whereas nowadays we realize, why would you take the ball out of a point guard's hand to score if he's, if he's causing the defense this many problems? So, you know, I think that's, that's just the, the nature of the game. If I had played today, obviously I would have been influenced by those who came before me and influenced by what the, the trends are. Um, so I think, I, yeah, I would have been slightly different at the same time. You know, I, I don't want to totally give away what made me unique. And that was, you know, I think uh, a little bit like Jason Kidd, you know, we used to get the ball, be not afraid to throw it ahead, to push, to create early opportunities for our teammates, to probe, you know, to, to, to try to control a game with our vision and tempo and, you know, without having to score necessarily. And so that was a different time and there's not as many guys like that per se, but it's not, it's not a, it's not a judgment. It's just because the trends and the, the circumstance and the context of the way the game's played today is different. I think that's one of the things I'm learning as a as a scoring guard in this league is how to push tempo without actually dribbling the ball. The pass ahead, the advanced pass, something that you did really well, something that mm-hmm. Kid did really well. Alonzo Ball is one of the best advanced passers I've seen in the NBA up to this point. Uh, being able to get the ball past half court with 22, 20 on the shot clock, which gives you the opportunity to have more offense. And then the, the probing, something that – we worked on, I still remember three three years ago in Canada, how you always keep your shoulders square. The ability to always be able to see the floor, never close it off is, is something that I'm consistently working on so that I can take my assists from three to five. And being able to score a lot is great, but if you want to be successful in the postseason or uh, in the half court, you have to be able to draw attention and empower someone else. So I think it's interesting you said that you know, one of the things you were you were able to do early on in your career was advance the ball and make people want to come to the gym. Mm-hmm. And that's huge. People wanting to actually play with you. People wanting to be on the court with you, understanding that if I'm open, Steve's going to find me. Steve's going to make give me two, three easy baskets a game. I think that's, that's crucial. Okay, we've got more pull-up in a second. But first, I want to tell you about Gillette On Demand. If you're shaving and you're not using Gillette razors, you're doing it wrong. In my case, I got a little bit of facial hair. 
Nice little peach fuzz I've had since college. Can't pull off the full beard like James Harden. But the razor keeps my gold tee looking on point. Routines are important to athletes, and shaving on game days is part of mine. Usually a few hours before I head to the arena, I get my shave on. And you can't go wrong with any Gillette razor, the Mach 3, the Sensor 3, they're all good. I roll with the Fusion Pro Shield personally. It gets the job done every time. Gillette razors are quality and will ensure that you leave the house looking and feeling fresh. And now you can get Gillette quality blades at the best value and convenience with Gillette On Demand. With Gillette On Demand, you can get blades delivered directly to your door. Subscribe to Gillette On Demand today and get 50% off your first order with special offer code PULLUP50 at checkout. Enjoy free shipping and every fourth order free with subscription. So again, visit Gillette online at GilletteOnDemand.com and use PULLUP50. That's P-U-L-L-U-P-5-0 for 50% off your first order. Wanting to revisit what you talked about from a confidence standpoint. I think it's it's crazy that you shot 50, 40, 90 four times and you talked about how early on you weren't even confident in your shooting ability. You were most confident and you trusted your passing the most. So I just want listeners out there to understand that we always touch on the importance of of the mentality, understanding mentally where you're at in life, being mindful, meditating, being able to find yourself. How did you concentrate? Like, I'm trying to get back to 90%. It's been a year since I shot 91%. Did you, did you meditate in the off season? Did you meditate in season? Like, how did you mentally focus in and lock into where you make five out of eight shots every night, understanding you're only going to get eight shots? Like, what was your process with this? My biggest like the, the number one thing when I'm, when I'm judging or, or worrying about a player's development is mentality. And um, confidence can come and go. Confidence is important, but resilience is the most important thing. So I think in my situation, your situation, you know, we both had a ton of resilience. And we had an ability to, you know, come back the next day and want more. No matter how the day before went, no matter how much success or failure we had, we had the resilience to to keep going day after day after day, you know, it never wavered. Um, a quick anecdote is uh, Barcelona, the, the soccer club, they have a, an academy called La Masia that's produced, you know, thousands of pros, you know, thousands that never played for Barcelona, but went and played pro around the world. You know, they also produce Leo Messi, you know, in my, in my opinion, the best player of all time and a bunch of other really, really top, top pros that played for Barcelona. They always say the number one predictor of success at La Masia is resilience, not technical skill, uh, athleticism, speed, strength, you know, ability. Like it's not the, because they get these kids that come to these academies that are the best of the best. They're little geniuses with the ball. That is not an indicator. That is not the number one indicator of success. The number one indicator of success is resilience. So, you know, someone that's been doing this for 100 years and has had some of the best players of all time and gets the cream of the crop as far as young kids in their region or, in, or if not in Spain in the world, it's resilience. So while I didn't always have confidence, I had resilience. And, and I always think that that is, is so important. And I, I actually, you know, talk to my clubs and the, I think it should be something that should be taught from the time you're 12 years old or younger. Like express to have this conversation we're having right now with the kids and say, just so you know, the number one predictor of success is resilience, not how high you can jump, not how strong you are, not how tall you are, not how skilled you are. It's resilience. 
know, the ability to come back every day, the ability to have a great attitude every day. Um, you know, I think that when you think about, you know, to message it to a kid and even your, even your, even guys on your team, you know, it's, you know, so we're going to grow the resilience muscle, you know, so you message it as relating it to, it's just as big a part as growing your shooting, your, you know, your quickness, your athleticism, you know, because that is the, you know, at the end of the day, that's, you know, how many talented players have you seen that don't have the resilience or the mental toughness to fight, you know, to come back and want more every day. So you have to treat it as something that's trainable and you have to message that to people, whether they're kids or they're adults. And, and then you can reference it and say, okay, so we're going to build the resilience muscle. So then you tell that kid, you know, two weeks later when he kind of, pointed fingers or gave up on a drill after practice, put your arm around. How do you think it went today? Good. Yeah. Okay. What about that drill? You did this. He's like, yeah, it was okay. What about when I saw you, you know, shoulders dropped, you stopped trying and you started pointing fingers at your teammates, you know, now you have a reference point. You've already planted the seed and now there's a, there's a dialogue that started that that kid knows Okay, this and this and why I'm telling you this is because I want to grow the resilience muscle. So the next time in that situation, they're aware, you know, they're consciously aware that there's a decision to be made in those moments. And that decision is just as important as can you put the ball in the basket? Can you defend? You know what I mean? So, you know, I think, you know, so I'm, I know I'm making a departure here, but I think that that the resilience and mental toughness attitude component of all this is is the most important. You know, if you look at all the top pros in the NBA, they have it. I mean, let's, I don't know, maybe you could give me an example of someone who doesn't, but 99% of our best players are resilient. For the most part, have a great attitude when it comes to, to most of their craft. Um, and that's why they, they've separated themselves. And then you could probably run all the fringe guys too. You know, a lot of the fringe guys. And these guys, you know, that have elevated themselves from where they probably should have been to where they are, that have raised their game, because the NBA does have some really talented guys that don't, maybe don't work as hard as they probably should. And you could say that about every office space, you know, in the world. But, you know, I think for me, confidence was something that came and went um, until I got to probably when I was 30. I mean, I, I changed my body in some respects. I really dug way down and worked on, like, you know, building a foundation, uh, taking away my default patterns, um, being creating solutions. You know, for just a small anecdote, I, I always love. I always preferred to penetrate or go go all the way to my left and pull up to my right. And the summer I went to Phoenix when I was thirty. You know, I cleaned all that up, and that was my own default patterns and movements that made it uncomfortable for me to pull up going left. You know, and made it uncomfortable for me finishing right. You know, I, I cleaned those up, so I became the rest of my career equally proficient pulling up, going left and right. And, you, you know, you see so many players in our league that never take the time to do that, and they prefer going one way. And, yeah, it takes a lot of thought. It takes some analysis as to why they, they, don't, they don't like going one way to pull up. And usually it's something to do with your body, um, you know, I, I, more so than it is the effort and time. And so, you know, just little things like that where, you know, I, I – was able to overcome a lot of kind of, like I said, deficiencies or default patterns and, and focus in on them and, and uh, hone them. But you're not going to get there without a lot of resilience, you know, great attitude every day, the patience, you know, I mean, I'm sure it took a lot of patience for you CJ, when you went through the second um, stress fracture or a fracture, whatever it was, um, you know, to say, okay, like I, I can't 
you know, I'm not going to get frustrated. There's a lot of, this could be very frustrating. I'm not going to, you know, be impatient. I'm going to choose a different path and play these cards that I'm dealt to my advantage. And I'm going to reset. I'm going to reboot. I'm going to rebuild in a way that only I could do right now, frankly, when I'm injured. Um, in some respects, that's, a, that's, that's, you know, takes a lot of foresight and intelligence, uh, but it also takes resilience and a great attitude. So I don't know that hopefully I didn't digress too much, but I, I think those are kind of some thoughts that are important to me. No, that was perfect. Piggybacking off of that, Steve, that term resilience, how, how did mm-hmm. going to Santa Clara impact your career? The fact that you weren't a blue chip recruit, that you yeah. didn't have this head start and how much did you draw on that throughout your career? Yeah, you know, I was never really aware of it until like late, like at the you know the end of my career, after my career, when I started to like, you know, I don't know how whether it was learning about the Barcelona anecdote and and you know likening it to my career and realizing that's what it was. You know, that's it was resilience. It was I had a joy for the struggle every day, and and the plateaus never became you know a lot of people when they stagnate they lose steam they lose momentum i never you know when i stagnated i it made me just double down and just keep stick with it and be more disciplined and you know so i I didn't realize at the time but that was something within me and natural to me that was more valuable than a shooting touch or vision you know because i could have had the exact same shooting touch mechanics vision and if i didn't have the resilience i mean I might not have played in college, you know, I might not have played or I might've been on the bench my entire college career. So, um, it's amazing how far just resilience took me. Um, but I didn't necessarily know it at the time. It was just my makeup was, I had a huge passion to play. I loved living life obsessed with something, you know, transfixed by it and watching myself transform. Um, that, that was a thrilling way to live. That, that gave me, it gave me a lot of life and gave me a lot of energy no matter how much energy I put into it, it gave me more energy, you know? And so I think a lot of people, they, you know, they, they reach a plateau and, and it's hard for them to keep going. And it's so important to like, enjoy the plateaus. And I think these are things that we should teach kids is, you know, the, those are the times you, you, you're afforded the most from plateaus. I, I would ask CJ this, but you know, the times that you struggle, the times you're under duress, adversity, you are failing, you know, you look back on them, those are the times that taught you the most um, or gave you the most strength. Um, you know, so, I mean, I was a guy that went to Santa Clara, one scholarship offer, no one knew who I was. We had a junior point guard ahead of me who was like an NBA-level defender, uh, wasn't a very good shooter. He probably would have played in the NBA, but could really penetrate and could, could pass. I mean, I could barely get the ball over half court on him. You know, and I was a very slick ball handler. He just was stronger, physically more developed than me, and I struggled. And so I started that. I started that preseason like, wow, I want to play in the NBA, and I can't even get the ball over half court on a player at a school that I'd never heard of before they sent me a letter. And you know that the point guard that I've never heard of. You know, I watched all these college basketball games, never heard of him. I can't get the ball over half court. And, you know, the, the reality is he was an exceptional defender and it was exceptional for my development to face him. But the trajectory was, you know, I struggled against him every day in practice. I backed him up, played 10 minutes a game the start of my freshman year. He got a scope around Christmas, was out for like two weeks. 
I started and played really well. When he came back, they decided that I was going to play the one and two. So I came off the bench and we did a three-man rotation and I played 30 minutes a game the rest of the year, culminating in us winning the conference tournament and me being the conference tournament MVP. So from going from can't get the ball in half court, over half court in September, October, to 10 minutes a game, to backing up the two and the one, to conference tournament MVP at the end of the year is, is a huge leap um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, like the guitar, sometimes it's, 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 um, it's strange to look back on and think how, like, you forget because so much happens in a long career. You play 18 years in the league and those four years in college, you forget, like, wow, that really happened. Like, that's not, that's not no, a normal evolution and so, um, or development curve. So I, I think, but I, I owe that to not giving up. Like, I stuck my nose back in there every time he ripped me and would try to go again and would try to come back the next day and would stay and shoot more and would, you know, and try to learn and, and stick with it instead of being like, I'm getting absolutely punked every day and, um, you know, and I'd lose my spirit. So that for me, that was, you know, kind of like those are the building blocks that you want to look for in a player, in a developing player is where, where is he mentally, where attitude wise, you know, I didn't necessarily meditate, but I believe in it. I do on occasion. I, I didn't necessarily visualize a lot, but I did rehearse, you know, in a sense, you know, my practice was a rehearsal because I'd put myself in a, in, I, I would take my practice at times and, and feel like I was in a game. Um, Anyways, I'm, I'm going on and on here, but hopefully uh, some of it makes sense. No, those are great anecdotes, and I, I appreciate you sharing them. I think it, it helps paint the picture of the fact that success doesn't come easy. And what you said is, is spot on. When you go through adversity, when you're challenged, when you're at your lowest of lows, that's when the, the true character of who you are comes out. That's when you really figure out who you are and what you want to be or what you want to accomplish. And I think we all get to those points where you have to make a decision. You either go left or you go right. You either continue to work hard or you quit. And the ones that are most successful are the ones who are, who are able to take those traumas, who are able to take those those obstacles, those things that yeah. you know seem impossible to overcome and push through it and do whatever it takes to overcome it. And I think that your story about not being able to get the ball up the court, you know, not starting, playing 10 minutes, it, it paints a picture for those listeners out there who are going through something, who maybe, you know, want to want to change career paths or maybe feel like they're never going to move up in, in the company ranks. Like anything is possible if you really dedicate yourself to your craft, whatever that craft is. And I think it's funny. I didn't start my first three games. I came off the bench. I was backing up the Patriot League player of the year, Rob Kiefer, who I'm still friends with to this day. Mm. And uh, he got in foul trouble twice. And I used to call my, my parents and my brother every day and say, all I need is for him to get in foul trouble or for him to tweak an ankle. And I never wished injury on anybody. But I said that if he tweaks that ankle and has to miss a half, it's over. <laughs> and uh, it just so happens that he got in foul trouble twice. And I got to play those those two games. And I, I, told, <laughs> I told him, once once we go home, it's over. We went home, and I was a starter. And uh, I scored 24 in my first start. And I said, I ain't going back to the bench. <laughs> I said, I'm not going back. I said, I had enough of it. So, so did he did, – did, did he – did you play the game? Did you play together or did you take a spot? Um, we played the, I took his spot. Like I started, he was, he was the rookie of the year. And he, so he was a sophomore. He started the first two games, foul trouble, foul trouble. Right. That's when Jason, we played Ryder at Ryder. Jason Thompson was playing and they were beating us like 17 to two. And we ended up coming back and losing. The next game I started and he, he was the backup from that point on. That's crazy. And it's, it's the, it's the struggle that makes you appreciate the success that much more. So when you when you couldn't get the ball up court 
and then you get to the uh, conference tournament and now they can't check you. You're thinking about how, man, four months ago I was struggling to get the ball off the court. Now they can't check me. Yeah. And that's when that confidence, right? Like the confidence starts to build. We'll have more pull up in a second, but first I want to talk to you about simple contacts. If you wear contact lenses and find yourself dreading that annual appointment to renew your prescription, then you're going to love Simple Contacts. It's a great new company that makes this annoying process very, well, simple. Simple Contacts lets you renew your expired contact lens prescription and reorder your brand of lenses from your phone or computer in minutes. Simple Contacts brings the doctor's office to wherever you are whenever you need it. You can take the simple contacts vision test online in five minutes. A real doctor reviews it, and if your vision hasn't changed, renews your prescription. You save time, you save money, and you save yourself a headache. And if you've already had an unexpired prescription, just upload a photo of it or your doctor's info and order your lenses in minutes for a great price. They do all the hard work for you. This is vision care for the 21st century. Simple Contacts offers every brand of lenses, and their prices are unbeatable. The prescription is just $20. Compare that with an annual appointment, which can be up to $200 without insurance. They have some of the best prices on contacts, and shipping is free. Best of all, my listeners get $20 off their first Simple Contacts order. To save $20 on your lenses, just go to simplecontacts.com backslash pullup or enter the code PULLUP at checkout. I want to mention that this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. You still need those occasionally, but it is the most convenient way to renew a prescription and reorder your contacts if your vision hasn't changed. Again, check out Simple Contacts and get $20 off by going to simplecontacts.com backslash pull up or just enter the code pull up at checkout. Give it a try and thank me later. We have to discuss the fact that you're in the Hall of Fame. Congratulations once again on, on making it to the Hall of Fame. It's, it's, yeah, congrats, man. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. As KD says, it's basketball heaven. It's basketball heaven, man. So uh, what were your thoughts when you first got the call that you're going to be in the Hall of Fame? And at what point, I think, I think we all go through this phase. At what point did you think in your career, like, I have Hall of Fame numbers. And <laughs> I've got, I've got, yeah. I'm a Hall of Famer because you were a Hall of Famer. I would say semi-early on into your career, like it was kind of written like, all right, he's going to be a Hall of Famer. His numbers are crazy. He's winning. He's been MVP, multi-time All-Star. Like the list kept going on and on. So yeah. kind of walk me through your mindset and then just, you know, how it feels now when you hear your name, Steve Nash, Hall of Famer. You know, it's the weirdest thing. I hope this doesn't sound like arrogant at all because it's not like I'm in, like it's unfathomable to be a kid from the West Coast of Canada you know, that basketball is the last sport I play. I started playing in the eighth grade, 13 years old, that, you know, I'm, that, I, that I'm in the Hall of Fame. Incredibly, incredibly honored because of all the great, great players that influenced me, not only as, as my idols, but influenced me indirectly because they influenced the ones that came after them and so on and so forth until my era. Um, you know, and, and respecting the history and the fabric of our sport and what a beautiful sport and history it is. So having said that, you know, and you can probably relate in some respects is that everything's like a natural progression in a sense, even though like you're fighting tooth and nail every day. Like I said, like that freshman year to go from can't get the ball or the court to conference term MVP. Like I didn't have time in the moment to like really sit down and be like, wow, look what I did. 
You know what I mean? You know, I was like back in the gym because I knew I also like, you know, we went on and played Arizona and beat them the next week. I wasn't a fully formed product. I had, I think I made, I was like one of five or six from the field and made six free throws of eight in the last like minute to kind of seal it. And yeah, I was probably a pest and a pain in the ass and a creative player, but you know, playing against those pros in Arizona, they probably had five or six pros on the team. You know, I still knew I had some ground to make up. You know what I mean? I knew I could get there, but I had some ground to make up and similar to your Kansas experience. And so I was right back in the gym. There was like, I still, I'm like on floor one, I need to get to floor six, you know, kind of thing. So that was my mentality. That underdog mentality every day stayed with me my entire career. But the reality is you go from, you know, can't get the ball over half court to playing a lot more to starting to being an NBA prospect to being drafted to, you know, becoming a starter to becoming an all-star to, you know, playing in the, I, for me, I never got to the finals. I played in the conference finals, I don't know, four or five times and um, played a ton of playoff games and, you know, you rack up numbers when you play a long time and all these accolades and it just becomes one of those things where everyone tells you, right? Like everyone, I never thought like, am I making the Hall of Fame? It just never crossed my mind. I was like sacrilegious to even think in those terms. It was, I'm an underdog, get up, get there early, get your work done and shut up and play. And so, but everyone starts telling you you're going in the Hall of Fame, you're going in the Hall of Fame. So after, after a while, you know, people reference you in articles or whatever, or interviews, or sitting here with future Hall of Famers. So after a while, you become a little bit numb to like, like, that's just, that's your, that's the reality. Do you know what I mean? Um, so I, I it, it, right. No, I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And it, it's so like you, when someone says to you, like, CJ McCollum averages 22 points a game in the NBA, you don't like hear that and stop and go, wow. Right. Like, that's just what you do now. Whereas if someone said that to you eight years ago, right. Right. You would have been like, what do you know, you know what I'm saying? So there's like this common, right. I don't know, the commonality or, or the new normal of living that career. And so in some ways, you know, you, I'm, I have to admit I was a little bit like numb to it or, or my walls were up. And, and that's why actually going to the Hall of Fame and getting inducted was, was really was really beautiful because it, you know, it, it you being there, accepting it with a great class, you know, of people that many of which I have a very special relationship, many of which I just admire greatly to see like, you know, the, the night, like I told this story a couple of times, but you, you know, I, we see Bill Russell. He's at all the all-star games who one of the all-time greats in our game. We see, I mean, I see Isaiah Thomas here, there and everywhere, not here, there and everywhere, but around, he was my hero growing up. Um, you know, same with magic. You see him all over and whether it's on media in the media or just, I see him at things. Right. But like Larry bird walked in, I was sitting there holding my one year old son on my lap front row. The speech that just started, I'd look over my shoulder and there's Larry bird. Like, it's just like, you never see Larry really. Right. I don't know. Does that make sense? And it kind of like, right. one of those moments that hit me up. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Like when you, got, when you were surrounded by everybody, that's when you realize like, I'm really, yeah. I'm company now. Like I'm, I'm one of them. Yep. Yep. And so you, you just kind of, it, and I, I, I don't, I should learn this, but you, you know, when people say, you know, I'm humbled like that, what does that mean? But it, it literally, it, I, if I ever thought that that made sense, being humbled in that situation, it, you know, I, I was, I was like, this is, this is incredible. This is no longer the new normal. This is like way more than I ever bargained for, asked for, wished for. I never dreamed of being in the Hall of Fame. And so to, to be there in that moment and to accept kind of that honor with those people around those other people and to notice like 
how important the game of basketball is to so many people's lives, how many lives it touches and, and what a huge, huge yet small community of, of, of people that, that love the game, um, how special that is. Uh, and, and it was, it, it also, what I was trying to say is it makes you take stock of what's transpired, you know, it makes you take stock that I was a kid that grew up with British, you know, British parents in a, on the West coast of Canada. You know, my dad was a soccer player. I love soccer, played hockey because it was natural to the area because I loved it and grew up in Canada, you know, played everything in school. And, and then eighth grade, a bunch of friends at a new school, played basketball. Michael Jordan started, had his first shoe and started doing commercials with Spike Lee. And I was like, whoa this is super cool i want to do this i started doing it really to be with my friends and then to think you know i'm sitting there at the end of this journey um you know it, it really made me take stock it was really special and and kind of took my walls down a little bit and and was able to embrace what a what an incredible journey it's been steve you talk about the new normal i'm just like i totally i love that expression because it, it can apply to different things and one of them is the way that tech has now helped NBA players improve. And I know you were at the Apple event uh, about a month ago and, and you unveiled the home court app. Um, just like, can you explain what that is? And and then furthermore, do you think tech is going to make basketball players better? Like how does it impact these guys? How can it help continue to evolve the game? Yeah, I think, well, I think tech is, is, is helping and it's inevitable. You know, we, I mean, for example, I think, uh, CJ probably grew up watching a lot more film than I did. Um, you know, I would tape college and pro games, but there was no like editing. There was no YouTube. There was no, it was just like, I would try to tape a whole game and try to like, remember what minutes that so-and-so made a great move in a college game and go out in the backyard and try to mimic it, you know, not the, you know, the schoolyard behind the house and try to mimic it. So whereas CJ could be a lot more pointed, you know, his college and high school programs probably had ability to get more, tape whether it was them make cutting tape or going to youtube or wherever you search and on the internet so that you know that that's an improvement that's a technological improvement to our game that's allowed i think players be better younger and 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 perhaps better overall so um that's just one one example but there's there's a ton of examples i'm i'm i my uh you know, direct kind of in involvement in, in the tech world of sports is, is with the home court AI app, which is, you know, this is a, an incredible piece of technology where a former Apple developer has been able to, without any sensors on the ball, just an app using your camera on your phone, you set your phone up on the side of the court and it measures, it sees the key and it sees the basket. And from there can measure makes and misses, distance, uh, release time, wow. um, trajectory of your ball. So like your basically your arc, but trajectory. Um, and what really drew me in when they approached me with it was that they were starting to develop body mapping where they could measure your body movements. And um, that is important to me because for me, like makes and misses is cool, right? But it's not necessarily meaningful feedback. Like for example, if someone, and even if CJ and I went to the gym and took some flat-footed, jumpers and made you know 68 out of 100 what does that mean like that 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 means that we're good at flat-footed what's the why yeah it means that we're good at flat-footed jumpers it doesn't mean that it translates to basketball so so one of the stats that we're measuring now we're going to continue to measure more and correlate this is we're calling it leg angle you know the angle of your your you know your femur tibia so your knee 
the angle of that joint. But really what, I, what it, it, it represents and what I push them to develop is your hip depth. So they're making sure you get, you're getting low because if you're getting low, you know, you can recreate that under duress. You have, you're going to have a higher arc on your ball. You're going to have a softer ball. You're going to um, be, be able to, one, beat someone, and, you know, pump fake and go or, 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 or read and react quicker. You're going to be more stable and stronger and you're going to be able to jump at the same height and reproduce the movement over and over. So um, th- that's meaningful feedback. If you take 100 shots and I can tell you where your hip depth or leg angle, as, we are, as we're calling it now, is and where it should be in relation to perhaps your size or position. And so the, the fast, for me, that's fascinating. Um, and right now we're two-dimensional, but eventually we'll be three-dimensional. We'll be able to get more data. And the app, although it's just started, we're collecting 2 million shots a month. So all that data, you know, we can reference with hip depth, arc, or trajectory as we're calling it, uh, you know, release time, makes, misses, you know, all these different different types that we can also recognize through the body mapping what type of shot it was. Is it a catch and shoot? Is it a pull up? Is it a step back? Is it a floater? So it's a brilliant piece of technology. And now what's important is that we, are giving meaningful feedback and relevant feedback and also being able to give to the masses because of that, because it, it, you know, I think we have a lot of good coaches. We don't have a lot of great teachers. So could, what can this app teach you is really important to me and what I'm trying to help them develop. Um, you know, that perhaps can't be seen with the naked eye or perhaps can only be seen with very, very trained naked eyes. So um, I, it's really, it's really exciting. I recommend anyone to, who, loves the game of basketball, whether you're an amateur, a weekend warrior, or a pro, um, to throw it on and see, you know, what, what, what is your trajectory? What is your release time? What is your hip depth? Or sorry, as we're calling it, leg angle. And how do those things correlate? And if you start collecting that data now, you know, we're also going to be able to give you more pertinent feedback in time. So uh, it also all sits there. All your workouts sit there so you can share it. You can, your coach can see it. Your team can see it. Your whatever, if you want, you can share it. Um, and it's, I, I just think it's powerful. And we're, I think we're going in, the, in a very special direction with it that could, you know, change the game in our own way and, and teach, uh, give, give meaningful feedback, give relevant feedback and information that allow kids that maybe aren't privy or exposed to great teaching, coaching, or, you know, necessarily whatever it is, something's missing in their game. Um, we'll be able to cover those kids and those people, but it's relevant for everybody. I mean, it's real. And if I were still playing, I would use it because I feel like it's, it's nice to track trends. You know, as a pro, you're always just trying to refine. So what is the trend? Am I, this last month, have I not been getting deep enough? Have I, has my arc been lower? Why? Do I need more rest and recovery? Do I need more strength and conditioning? Do I need, you know, do I need to just listen? Like you can put your earbuds on, headphones, and listen to the app tell you what your leg angle is on every shot in real time. Or your arc, your trajectory is in real time. So if that's the one thing you want to focus in on, you can say, I want to work on getting lower in my shot. You can, you can, you know, use the app to say, I just, I want real time feedback in my headphones as to my leg angle. And so that if it's, if your leg angle is supposed to be whatever, 90 and you know, you're, it's telling you every time, 78, 81, 74, you, you can immediately improve and try to be more deliberate, um, 
be more exaggerated and start to develop the strength and muscle memory to get lower. And the same with trajectory, the same with um, release time, whatever it may be that you need to work on. Oh, that's dope. I'm going to download the app right now, actually. So uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it would be, uh, it would be really cool to hear what you, how, how you, how you use it, what's relevant to you, and you know how it could be. You know, uh, I don't know something that like maybe there's one for you refining your game and as a as a you know a great NBA player. How does it? How is it relevant and pertinent to you? Um, that that to me is just as fascinating as how you know a, a you know a 13, 14, 15 year old kid uses it. Yeah, I think the interesting part is is finding that the right dip, figuring out the angle and the and the leg dip so you can get the proper arc. A lot of times we miss slightly short. Good shooters is slightly short. That gives you the front rim or in and out where it's front rim, back rim off. So mm. that extra, I don't know, three degrees, four degrees, whatever it is, that changes that changes a slightly short to a swish. Right. Right. Exactly. And 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 also it gives you a chance under duress, right? When you're moving full speed into a corner catch and shoot three, or if you're you know, putting someone on their heels and pulling up, you know, that even you need that ability to stay low, stable and strong to recreate the movement up top. Right. If you, if you are, if you're not deep enough, your momentum's going to carry you, like you're going to move your center mass outside the middle of where it should be. You know, your center mass should be between your feet. And if you, if you're not low enough, your center mass is going to go gravitate towards one side or the other, which is going to just add too much difficulty to a shot. Um, and in many ways, that's why that's why players have a hard time going one way rather than the other. Is they can't control that sagittal or like that that force going one direction and transferring it up in the air. So if you if, if you ever look at that, you see a player that has a problem going one way or the other to pull up. It's usually because they can't transfer the force from linear to vertical and control their center mass. And so they're now drifting, leaning, or they've dissipated their force because they can't control it and transfer. So um, anyways, I could go on and on about the technical <laughs> side, side of the game and bore people to death, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it is, a, I think, an extremely uh, exciting app. No, I downloaded it, so I'm gonna check it out when I get some when I get some free time, man. But uh, I I appreciate you coming on. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you some questions offline because I don't want to hold you up any longer. But I definitely want to ask you some questions about the Steve Nash Sports Club, as well as the uh, Steve Nash Youth Basketball League that you have in uh, sure. British Columbia. But I appreciate you coming on the the pod, man. You're a spectacular person. Great career. You inspire a lot of people. You've empowered a lot of people, especially kids, with the stuff you do with the Steve Nash Foundation. And I just want to thank you again for coming on and sharing your story. I think it'll be helpful to kids out there, people out there who may be going through something, just to hear the stories of other successful people who have faced uh, different types of obstacles in their life. My pleasure, my man. Appreciate it. Love watching you and always rooting for you. So always here to help. And uh, thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you, Steve. Thanks again to Steve for coming on the pod. I appreciate it. Hall of Famer, legend. One of the people who's inspired me throughout my life. You can catch us on the Apple Podcast, radio.com, or wherever you get your shows. We appreciate you guys listening and girls. And don't forget to pull up, pull up.